Hey guys, welcome to another Honest Conversation with Alex Cubis, brought to you by Nova Entertainment. In this episode, I chatted with Cassie J, an award-winning filmmaker best known for The Red Pill, a documentary which has garnered international media attention for, among other things, its supposed bias towards men's rights activists, or MRAs as we refer to them in this chat. Cassie previously made the documentary The Right to Love, An American Family, which explored LGBT family rights, and Daddy I Do, which explored sexual education with a focus on women's personal stories. In this conversation, we discuss fair representation in the media, filmmaking, the danger of adopting labels, and when advocacy for specific issues is necessary as opposed to ideologically biased. Unfortunately, we were pressed for time, so I encourage you listeners out there to check out Cassie's TEDx talk, as well as asking questions to her or me via Facebook or Twitter. I hope you guys enjoy this chat. Cassie, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Cassie J. I'm the director of the Red Pill documentary, which you can find on Amazon Prime and Hulu and Every, uh, every good iTunes, streaming Yeah, site. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Cassie, I start off my interviews with the same four questions. I think, I feel, I need, I want. So, right in this moment, as honestly as possible, what are you thinking, feeling, what do you need, and what do you want? Oh, well, to be completely honest, what I'm thinking is I really hope my cat doesn't start meowing because she's constantly okay. hassling me. Um but what do I think? What do I feel? What do I want? Is that right? Yeah. What do you, and what do you need? Oh, gosh. Good questions. Uh, well, okay. So besides the trivial thinking about my cat, um, what yeah, do I feel? Um, I, I do feel anxious. I, I want to provide a, a wide array of information for people who have never heard about me or the film before. I, sure. I want to be thorough, but there's also a lot to understand. Uh, and what do I need? Um need to calm down and (laughs) what do I want um you know I just uh I I guess I don't want to be prejudged so I guess what I do want is to for for the listeners to have an open mind when they hear my story yeah great so I think on that topic uh in in researching your work and how you've been represented in the media that's the common issue that you've faced against and you recently said that you wouldn't have necessarily I think in an interview with uh, Inc.com you wouldn't have gone back and done anything necessarily differently with the Red Pill movie but you have found it challenging the way that you've been uh, represented and that your persona online is different from who you are how do you face up against that criticism how has your response changed and, and what have you learned about yourself in the process of coming up against this type of criticism to your work? Oh, gosh, that, that's such a good and deep question for me uh, because I, I really do stand behind everything I did with the film, how I made the film, and, and how I released it with the decisions I made. Uh, but, yeah, there were, there were some arrows being thrown my way that I really couldn't have avoided even if I took different paths along the way uh, and some of those arrows were just being misprinted in the media a lot mm-hmm. by, by really mainstream media sources and the um, the people who were the most honest about me and accurate about my story were not considered mainstream sources or, or didn't really have any kind of um, wide uh 
reputable reputation and, and yeah. credibility. And so it was just really frustrating because even simple things like uh, my Wikipedia page, I'm frustrated about because uh, apparently Wikipedia's rules is that you have to uh, cite what they consider reputable media sources, mainstream media sources, but they right. they include sources to be like Vice or The Guardian, but I know that they mis- misrepresented me in their yeah. articles and, and spread a lot of inaccurate information. And uh, so, you know, when these mainstream sources get, get published and, and then repeated over and over again, it's just impossible to squash these myths about the film and myself. So, so what I, I don't those, know how I could have avoided that, though. Well, what are one of those... Uh, uh, not facts, but what are some of those pieces of information that sites like The Vice and Guardian have presented? Well, definitely the most uh, commonly believed and printed lie about me in the film is that the film was funded by MRAs. And it's so infuriating for me to see this printed over and over again by articles like The Vice. And the truth of it was that I wouldn't accept any funding from a partisan foundation. And I was offered funding by a feminist organization and I turned it down because I did not want to give up creative control over the film. So my only option to fund post-production of the film was through Kickstarter. So I launched a Kickstarter where feminists helped fund the Kickstarter as well as MRAs, but mostly people who didn't identify as either. And the reason I know how they identified was they would comment or write about how they found the page and what they are and what their views are. And really it was just mostly people wanting to support free speech because they knew that there were uh, a lot of barriers that it was up against to get this film completed. So, uh, you know, it's just really infuriating because, you know, Vice and the Guardian and New York Times and Village Voice have have printed this over and over that it's funded by MRAs, but that's as, just as factual as saying it's funded by feminists, but really it's it's neither because Kickstarter backers had no creative control over the film whatsoever, and it was the only way I could keep control over the film. Sure, yeah. So a good example of, I guess, the democratization of filmmaking. Um, I think that we'll probably touch on that later, hopefully, if we have enough time. Um, but one of the questions, uh, it doesn't necessarily flow on from your comments. So I want to give you free reign to keep coming back to whatever you'd like to talk about. But, um, one of the criticisms of the film is the representation or the sympathetic representation of MRAs. Um, and even on your website, what I, what I really liked about your website is that you present both the good press and then also the quote, uh, bad and ugly and uncensored press, um, even one of the, quote, good articles, though, from Mamma Mia cites that it's uh, a frustrating or a relatively frustrating or infuriating film because it's offensive or in the way that it sympathizes with, uh, with men. Um, I was curious about why you didn't keep coming back to uh, the blog posts or the quotes that some of the MRAs have said in the past or attributed towards them, maybe in the same way that you came back to feminist representations? Hmm. Well, I actually really don't feel like I did go to the dark side of feminism because of 
how many horrible things have been written on feminist forums and blog posts and things of that nature. So I don't think, you know, I didn't want the whole film to be, let's show a screenshot of a comment made and then say how atrocious this is, but also try to be understanding where they're coming from, which when I started digging into the comments that Paul Elam has made that have really been cherry picked by the mainstream media to show how atrocious he is. When you actually go to the articles of where those cherry picked comments came from, there are really valid points that are made. And for me to have gone into those comments, for instance, like one that's uh, reprinted a lot by the mainstream media to, um, to as an argument that Paul Elam is, is a misogynist, mm-hmm. he said in an article that if he were on a rape trial as a juror, that he would uh, vote or he would put in his vote that the man is, is innocent of yep. rape no matter what the evidence shows. And really what he's doing is having an inflammatory type of sentence in this very long blog post saying that the system is flawed and this would be my, uh, you know, activism or retribution because of how flawed the system is. So just like a a feminist who's fighting for, you know, it's a rape to say I would vote the man's guilty no matter what the evidence is because so many women are raped and don't see justice and men walk free. So, you know, it's an inflammatory comment and that's really the basis of his article or, or where that comment came from and you know sure I could have had five minutes in the film to included that but I, I found so many other important issues that I really wanted to address and there's only so much a two-hour film can handle yeah and of course I, I did show the at the time when I was making the, the film the most popular uh comment of Paul Elam's that was really printed by the mainstream media was his quote unquote bash of violent bitch month article. And so I did address that in the film because that was the most talked about. So that was my kind of, all right, here, here I'm addressing one of his worst comments. And, uh, you know, that now let's talk about suicide rates and domestic violence and circumcision and father's rights and, you know, Boko Haram and all these other stories I really wanted to go into. Did you have a conversation with him directly about those blog posts and those comments? And how did those, did, yeah. how did they flow? And was those what some of the instances where you felt that your perception of the conversation was changing or did you revisit it as your, I guess, your views changed over the course of making the film? Uh, yeah, they did. my views did change on it because, uh, you know, the, the great part about Paul's comments is they're in his articles which you can read and reread over and over again. And so every time I reread his article, uh, the articles that I was initially offended by, I would start to understand more and more what he was saying and the point he was getting at. Whereas earlier on, when I was still very, you know, feminist minded and, and offended by a lot of this stuff, I only focused on the sentences that were most offensive to me. So uh, I did ask him about the different writings. And, you know, often that would lead into discussing the issue that that was the purpose of that writing. Um, and I'm also releasing the red pill raw files, which is unseen bonus features from the film on my YouTube page. And one of the raw files I released, I directly asked him about, do you stand behind this article called the unspoken side of rape, which was actually the first article I read on a voice for men that triggered me. It offended me. And that's what kind of, I guess, led me down the rabbit hole. Uh, so I asked him about that and we're in the car driving over the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco and, and he gives a, you know, 10 or 15 minute response and you, you can find that on YouTube in full. Okay, cool. Um, 
when going back to your comment about the mainstream media representation of of the issues in the film, why do you think? First, I guess two part question: Why do you think the mainstream media cherry picks in the way that it it has or it continues to do about your project? And do you think that it would have been received differently had it been released twenty years ago? Oh. Uh... 20 years ago. Well, I I think the cherry picking part is, uh, you know, it's the, we live in a soundbite culture, you know, with everything, whether it's social media or commercials or, you know, trailers for movies, you know, the trailers show the best bits of the film in the trailer. And, you know, that's a common complaint of a lot of people, but we, we live in a soundbite culture and, uh, you know, even a lot of the feminist issues are, you know, based on sound bites that women make 77 cents to a man's dollar. And, you know, there's so much, you know, more information below the iceberg about that. Uh, so I, I think they cherry pick, you know, Paul Elam's writings and A Voice for Men to quickly uh, get the point across to their reader that these are awful human beings and they're misogynist and they're anti-women. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of, sensationalized way to get their Attract. message it's click it's clickbait essentially is that yeah. what you reduce it to do you think that it's it's just clickbait and it the media has an understanding for what gets people to view articles and drive up advertising i mean obviously it's a more nuanced and complicated issue than that but that right. the status quo is a politically correct culture and that mainstream media simply tries to appeal to that yeah, definitely. And, and it, you know, it has a lot to do with how the way the media has changed and the way it's it now makes money. Uh, because back when we had uh, subscription-based news models, so the New York Times, you had a subscription to the newspaper that you get every Sunday. And if yeah. there was anything printed in the newspaper that was inaccurate, they would have to issue, issue a retraction the following week and they would lose subscribers from that. Right. Uh, so there used to be an incentive to always print the truth. Uh, but now we don't have subscription-based newspapers. Our, our news feed is basically Twitter, Facebook, and, you know, Huffington Post and uh, the Young Turks and whoever you follow on Twitter. And, uh, and it's actually been shown that if you print false information and have to issue a retraction, you'll actually make more money as a news outlet or a writer because you now have more ad space, you have more clicks, you have more comments pointing out what you did, uh, what you said that was inaccurate. So because the the money-making model is different now, it actually incentivizes false information being printed in the media. Wow. Um, When you were starting out as a documentary filmmaker, is that something that you yourself encountered and and wanted to tackle with your initial films, which were more focused on, I suppose, quote unquote, women's issues? Hmm. Uh, let's see. I mean, I had a lot of support for my, my first two feature films, Daddy, I Do and The Right to Love. Uh, Daddy, I Do was really embraced in feminist circles. So I, I didn't see much pushback from that film. And then The Right to Love was about gay marriage and it was released three years before gay marriage was legalized in the U.S. And, uh, you know, the only pushback we really got from The the Right to Love was from Westboro Baptist Church, which basically anyone who spoke about gay issues would get backlash from them. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, the media is is fair to us. Yeah, sorry, I guess I correct my question. I, I meant that with your filmmaking, do you attempt to sort of restore an understanding of uh, 
not society, but a more balanced representation of how humanity should be understood? And are you responding to Uh a skewed and biased representation in the media? Yeah, you know, I, and I don't know if it's a, a journalistic ethics kind of issue, or if it's just my personal ethics and morality about Mm -hmm. always being truthful. And, and I I think also a lot of it has to do with, uh, when you're a documentary filmmaker, the people you interview that you go into their home and spend hours filming them on camera and really digging into sometimes the darkest part of their lives, they really have to trust you. And for me, that trust is built on, on, on honesty, on being transparent and being honest about what I'm doing. And so when I gain their trust, I I really don't ever anticipate to, you know, do a gotcha or edit them out of context to, um, you know, to make them look bad. So even with the, no matter the the people that I interview in my films, whether it's feminists or men's rights activists, I always want to be true to their stories because they trusted me to film them. Yeah, sure. And how do you think that you have changed over the course of your filmmaking career to gain the trust of your interview subjects? How, sorry, what did, how, how, how do you think that you've, your approach to interviewing and building a trust and rapport with your subjects has changed over the course of your filmmaking career? Hmm. Um, changed. Or I don't if, know if, if it, it has hasn't necessarily changed, really. famed, I guess, how would you, how would you frame it and how would you understand it? Uh, yeah, well, I have been filmmaking now for 10 years, which is crazy to think I'm 31 years old and I started when I was 21. And, uh, I, I, I mean, I really just, I think it is about being a a good person and knowing that we all have our personal stories and experiences that lead to our political beliefs or our religious faith or, you know, whatever, however we walk through life is, is usually based on our past experiences and we don't always have the whole picture uh, so I, you know, for me, I, I just, I think I've always known that I have a very limited, uh, understanding of the world because of the path that I've been on in my life. And so I'm, I'm curious to learn from other people's stories and their lives of, you know, what, how do they see the world? And so I think I just have a, an open mind about it. Um, I mean, I identify as a liberal, I, I'm a registered Democrat, but, uh, you know, I'm still very open to hearing a libertarian or a Republican talk about their beliefs and, or what their stance is on these issues. And I really just want to understand it. Uh, but you know, that, that part of it has changed for me because, uh, you know, I don't think before making the red pill, I was as open-minded because I, I was very strongly feminist and mm. I, uh, you know, I had very strong views about political issues and now where I stand, um, you know, I think what makes anything a political issue is that there's mul- there are multiple ways to look at these issues. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a political issue. For instance, uh, abusing children is not a political issue because there's no one that is advocating for abusing children. Uh, but right. abortion rights is a political issue because there are a lot of people against it or uh, environmental uh, you know, advocacy, that kind of thing. There are a lot of people that challenge that. And so anything that there's gray on is a political issue. And I think if, if you have a really strong hardline stance on any of these political issues, then you can identify that as being um, an ideological bias. Yes. Because really, we shouldn't be hardline on any of these issues. They're all very gray. 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm trying to just be a little more open-minded about trying to see the other sides of these political issues now. Sure. And I, I guess I suppose I see that in your work and you've said this before in the way that you in your Facebook post, for instance, about your film and um, tying it with a conversation about International Men's Day, you don't necessarily present yourself as having answers, but you like to ask questions with your films. And I'm, I'm assuming, or if you don't mind me saying, I'm assuming that you'll continue to do that with your next projects. Um, I guess in line with that then, do you think that when do you see everyone moving away from isms as people like to identify themselves as currently when do you think that we'll move closer to a i suppose humanist movement i don't know if that's a correct word because that has different philosophical connotations but do you see that happening in the next couple of years or in your lifetime where we can have everyone can i guess maintain a, a balanced perspective and how do you think we can move closer to that oh that that, that is Oh, you know, I don't have a, a strong opinion about what is the answer because I don't think there is a clear-cut answer right now. But, yeah. you know, for, for me personally, I have dropped the label of feminist and I have not adopted a new label of either egalitarian or humanist or men's rights activist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just letting myself be labelless, And, uh, you know, your, a big part with respect of to your ideology, that, do you mean? I'm sorry, say that again? Yeah, do you, do you mean you're labelless with respect to your ideology or your take on the world and people? But, and just, even though you say that you're a registered Democrat, but you're still, but you're open-minded and that's just like you, when you do vote, you have, I guess you're forced to make a decision. Um, but in the way that you live the rest of your life, you just don't box yourself in. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's the most malleable place to be in without being attached to a label. And I, part of what I really now enjoy about not identifying as a feminist or calling myself a feminist is now that I, whatever I say, I'm not speaking for feminism and whatever a feminist says is not speaking for me. And I, I really like that freedom to, I'm just a standalone person with thoughts and a lot of questions and some ideas, but uh, you know, I, I think that's a really, I, I guess that's the best kind of um, student place to be in. And I do mm. feel like I'm, I'm still learning and I'm still trying to gain more knowledge and information and I don't have all the answers. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I don't know if that's, you know, the answer for everything. I, I can also see why advocacy for these specific causes is good, because when when something is being shouted from the rooftops, so much and so uh, prevalent throughout our pop culture and the media and everything, uh, then sometimes other issues can get ignored and there can be an information gap. Uh, So I think that's what the men's rights activist purpose is, is that they believe that, you know, feminists really do have the loudest microphone when it comes to gender issues and men's rights activists are trying to, uh, you know, close the, the information gap on what men are dealing with in the world. So, you know, I, I, I can see what they're doing. And I, I think, um, you know, it, it's good because I could see what it did for me was when I learned about men's issues, I really realized that uh, it's not only women are oppressed and men are the oppressors. There's a lot of uh, role reversals on that where women are doing bad things and men are innocent victims. And we should talk about that as well. Right. 
when going back to uh, as an Australian, um, you probably I first encountered your work through an interview you did on the project. Um, is there anything in that, and I guess that most people can see it on Twitter, and that attracted both support for you and then also criticism? Um, and the criticism, I suppose, in many instances was partly unfounded because some of the interviewers in Australia hadn't even seen the film. Are there, are there in any instances of those in Australian interviews that you would have handled differently? Um, or how do you, what would you like to add on to those situations? Oh, thanks for asking. Because, uh, yeah, the project interview was, I, I'm, I'm pretty frustrated with how that all came out. Uh, for one, I, I think my segment on the project w- turned out to be five minutes long, and my actual interview with them was more like 15 minutes, so they edited out two-thirds of what I said. Right. Uh, and what they did include, uh, and what seemed to be the most, I guess, shocking and, and seemingly appalling to the Australian bite. public was my comment about um, Rosie Beatty. Batty. Uh, so what happened for listeners who don't know, uh, one of the project hosts said that we do have an issue with female victims of domestic violence in Australia. And she brought up the case of Rosie Beatty and how her son was killed uh, by her, I believe, ex-husband or boyfriend, someone like that. And I did not know about this case whatsoever. I live in San Francisco Bay Area. I've been busy working on the red pill. I I did not know about this Rosie Beatty case. Uh, So when I heard it, um, what I immediately thought was, well, I don't know the age of the son, but I do know that in the U.S. we only have one domestic violence shelter, and the first uh, the first boy to take a bed at this male men's domestic violence shelter was he was about seventeen years old, and his father pulled a gun on him, and he didn't have anywhere to go, so he went to this domestic violence shelter, and he had refuge. So when Rosie Beatty was brought up, and that her son was killed, I, I didn't know the age. Uh, so I said, but here's a, a example of a male victim of domestic violence and that he should, you know, have resources, domestic violence shelters, uh, regardless of his gender. And apparently that was not the right thing to say for the Australian public because, uh, later I found out that it, it was a really, uh, big nationwide case and, and it's propelled the violence against women, um, cause, causes and, uh, activism there. And I also didn't know that the son was just a couple years old, but, uh, but still there are many domestic violence shelters that refuse to accept any boys over the age of nine or 12, uh, just, just because of the gender they were born with. Uh, and I do think that's, that's wrong. I think we should have resources for anyone regardless of their gender. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, is there anything that I know that you've said before that there isn't anything that you would have changed? Um, and I apologize for jumping around. I know that we just were pressed for time. Um, but there were like even small moments in the film, uh, like one of the, a couple of the reviews or the criticisms remarked that uh, the filmmaker reveals her amateur status because you see her Google quote rape culture. Um, I understand why you included a moment like that in the movie. Obviously it establishes a narrative um, for you, I guess, investigating a topic. Small mo- moments like that in the filmmaking process, would you go back and change? Or do you think that it's sort of, do you think that that criticism is in any way 
valid or how do you balance, I guess, speaking to your audience in a way that is uh, appeals to a wider demographic versus one that would have otherwise made your film too academic? Oh, that, that's so funny because I hadn't heard of that criticism of the film saying that by showing me Googling rape culture shows my amateur status. That's really funny and it actually kind of shows their yeah, um, inability to think of the big picture yeah, because, yeah. Yeah, I, of course, I've, I became a feminist in my late teens, so I was a t- feminist of 10 years before ma- making The Red Pill, and I knew a lot about rape culture and what feminists have said about it. I was actually considering making a film about rape culture. And so even if yeah, you know everything about the topic, the film, you still right? Google it. So that, yeah. that's funny that they would criticize that. Um, I mean, Again, you know, I think they're bite. just looking for any way to uh, write me off and, and say I'm a naive little blonde girl that doesn't know what she's doing. And I think I find that so ironic too, because mm. there's this whole female filmmaker Friday, uh, you know, campaign to really uplift women to be filmmakers. And I, I think it's funny because it's just, you know, as long as you're uh, along with the left feminist kind of script, then they really want to uplift you and support your work. But if you go against that platform or, or that agenda, then they do not want to support you and they'll do whatever they can to uh, smear your name. So, you know, I just find it really funny. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it just really kind of actually uh, supports the film's, you know, dialogue even more. Like, yeah. what is going on? Why can't we talk about these gray issues and and have a deep conversation without jumping to just name calling and, and trying to, you know, smear and, each other's yeah, reputations and, with baseless and, arguments. And criticizing a film, I suppose, by cherry picking moments rather than looking at the bigger picture. Um, right. You tweeted uh, on the Golden Globes, don't fight discrimination with favoritism. Um, I'm guessing that that was either referring to the fact that all the actresses were wearing black dresses or something about the speeches. Did you want to elaborate on that? And instead of fighting discrimination uh, with favoritism, what would you suggest? Yeah, and and just to, I was about to tweet, don't fight discrimination with discrimination. Um, I ended up at the last second changing it to favoritism. Uh, because I, I don't, I don't know, even though they're uh, synonyms for each other, they're interchangeable, it, it does feel like the word discrimination is a bit harsher than favoritism. Uh, but yeah, I, I did feel like the Golden Globes, uh, the speeches, uh, in, including Oprah's comments about uh, sexual assault victims, and she specified in her speech that she was talking about female victims. Uh, only and uh, and then also Natalie Portman you know I was I was I'm a big fan of hers so I thought it was a bit disappointing for her to diminish the um, amazing uh, opportunity that those five male directors had for being up for the best director award and she took a jab at saying that it's the all-male nominees and you know that's really I, I think sad because I ended up a little bragging moment for a second. I ended yeah. up meeting Guillermo del Toro two days later right. at um, Skywalker Sound for a screening of his film, The Shape of Water. And he's just the most amazing soul. Like he's just such a gentle human being and he's been through so much in his life. And yes, he is male, but he has not had an easy life by any means. 
And I think for her to, you know, diminish him winning that award with that comment was, Mm. uh, it was sad. It was really sad. Do you think that it's necessary in order to normalize or create a more balanced world where there's not a lot of this infighting or resistance? um, Do you think that it's necessary to have this big pushback in, in order to then, I guess, create a create a new status quo, if that, if that makes sense. So forgive me if I'm not phrasing my, but there needs to be a big push um, and an aggressive one at that. And then for eventually it'll settle out. Oh. It's a hard, it's obviously a difficult thing, but I feel like that maybe all of this is happening in a way that it'll, the, you know, the balance will be achieved in a couple of years as a result of it. And otherwise maybe it would have stayed the same. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we do need to shine light on hypocrisy. Um, and I, I think it's also really valuable to have debates because, uh, that, that is the best way to show any weakness in one or the other's argument is to have debate from opposing sides. And we, you know, we know we've heard of this echo chamber, a million times, but it is really true that we we have echo chambers online with um, our our view uh, history and and the algorithm algorithms for that. Uh, and you know, I don't I don't think we are really getting to know people from different walks of life, and and we're just kind of all you know patting each other on the uh, on the backs of people we agree with. Right. And um, you know, I, I wonder if if it was different before this internet age, uh, when people really, all you knew were the people in your town Mm. and whether you liked them or not, you had to live around them and get to know them and see them at the grocery store or do whatever. And you know, it's now it's like you can mute or block anyone you never want to hear from again. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we're, I think our, I think we have more intolerance in a lot of ways, uh, whereas I think we had to be tolerant um, before the internet to to get along with the people in our general vicinity. Yeah, no, that's that's a definitely a valid comment. Um, well, I feel like we've only just started our conversation, but unfortunately, guys or listeners out there, Cassie does need to uh, head off to another interview. Um, I think that this is a conversation um, that could probably be continued online. So you guys can find Cassie J on Twitter and Facebook and check out the raw files or the red pill raw files on her YouTube channel and also her Ted talk. Uh, Cassie, is there anything different? Is, is, first of all, is there anything that you would like to add or that maybe I hadn't touched on that you really wanted to get out there? Oh, uh, no, I, I think you ask great questions. I, uh, thank you for being you know, willing to talk to me and having me on your show. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you keep up the good work with your masculinity series. Cool. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. That's okay. And um, is there anything different from the beginning of our conversation with, I think I feel I need and I want, I get, I'm guessing it's that you need to get to your next interview, but um, is there anything different in your thinking and feeling process now that we've had this chat? I I think, uh, well, I, I think I represented myself well in, in this interview, so I'm glad about that. There's always a worry that you may, um, you know, say something that you don't truly mean or, or you wouldn't have said if you thought of it through more. Sure. Um, I So I think I, I feel, uh, yeah, I feel good about this. <laughs> and and uh, I, 
yeah, I want to do good in my other interviews. I have a few more interviews this week. And it's always really, really stressful because especially with the internet age, you know, everything you do is forever documented online. And I always have to remind myself of that. And, uh, you know, I'm actually a a pretty private introverted person. And so, uh, it's, it's always a bit scary to like put myself out there and be a public speaker. But, um, oh, speaking of that, I did a TEDx talk that I'm really proud of. So if anyone wants to see that on YouTube, just, uh, Google my name with TEDx. Yeah, definitely guys, you should check it out. And I think that, I mean, my biggest takeaway from this conversation is that we should all just listen more and, um, maybe consider the ways in which we adopt labels, uh, can be a little bit dangerous sometimes. Um, But again, this is a conversation that I feel like I want to continue exploring. Um, And feel free to reach out to me on Twitter as well as Cassie. And thank you, Cassie, for being a guest. Thanks, Alex.